Welcome to Autism Knows No Borders. Discover what's possible when people impacted by autism inspire change and build community. Together with the Global Autism Project, here's your host, Rachel Harmon. Hello, everyone. Our guest today is Dr. Megan Miller. Megan is a board-certified behavior analyst based in Florida. She's the founder of the Do Better Movement, a professional development initiative for behavior analysts aimed at creating humane, culturally informed, and compassionate interventions. Megan also co-wrote the book, The Seven Steps to Earning Instructional Control, with Robert Schramm, which was published in 2014. In today's conversation, we discuss how Megan became involved in the field, what she's learned from working internationally, and why she decided to start the Do Better movement. Megan shares three examples of areas she believes behavior analysts should focus on to improve their clinical skill sets. In this episode, discover what's possible when you welcome different perspectives. For more information about Megan and her work, please visit our show notes at autismknowsnoborders.com. We appreciate your time. If you enjoy this podcast and you'd like to support our mission, please take just a few seconds to share it with one person who you think will find value in it too. You can also follow us on Instagram at Autism Podcast and subscribe to our YouTube channel, Global Autism Project. And now I present you, Dr. Megan Miller. Hi, Megan. Welcome to Autism Knows No Borders. Thank you for being here today. Thank you for having me, Rachel. I've been listening to this podcast since you started it several months ago. It's been a highlight of my runs in the morning, <laughs> and I'm so happy to be here. Great. I'm glad to hear that you're finding some value in it. Could you please briefly introduce yourself? Sure. I am a board-certified behavior analyst. I have a PhD in special education and behavior analysis. I'm originally from Ohio. I'm sure your listeners will wonder where my accent is from. <laughs> However, I currently live in Florida and enjoy the warm weather down here. I think it snowed already in Ohio. So <laughs> for my job currently, I mostly do consulting and training, professional development for other behavior analysts. But prior to that, I worked mostly in home and a little bit with school consulting, focusing on students and children with autism diagnoses. Wonderful. So let's start with your background. How did you begin working with the autistic population? It was by happenstance. I was an undergrad up in Cleveland, Ohio at a really small university called John Carroll. And we had to do an internship for our senior year, but there were only two places to choose from. There was a mental health facility inpatient, and there was the Cleveland Clinic Center for Autism. And the Cleveland Clinic Center for Autism was only five minutes from where I lived. So I chose that. <laughs> but I quickly fell in love with what I was seeing, how quickly the children there were making progress and really connecting with the world around them. So after my internship ended, I started doing in-home programs. There wasn't board certification at that time or anything. It was mostly people that were trained, usually trying to replicate some of the work that Lovas was doing with early intensive behavioral intervention. So I worked in home 
for two families up in Cleveland. And then I moved to Columbus and worked for four families and took a year off because I wanted to get, I knew I wanted to go to grad school. You can't really do much with an undergrad in psychology. Oh, I know. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But I didn't really know like what I wanted to do. And I found out while I was living down in Columbus that you could go to school for behavior analysis. So another happenstance, I Quickly did a Google search. I was looking through some paperwork I had for graduate schools that I had requested previously, and I found one university that was still taking applicants for that coming fall. And it was Florida State University, which is happens to be one of the best programs in the world for behavior analysis. So I applied and I got in and moved to Florida. And I've been in Florida off and on for the past 15 years. Okay. So You know, on this podcast, we've talked before about passion stations, and you might have heard our CEO, Molly, talk about this before. And I just love this idea of a memory that you reflect on that reminds you why you love doing what you do. So it could be related to a specific person or an event, but it's something that inspires and moves you. You know, sometimes in our work, whether you're a line therapist or you're a consulting BCBA, we may feel stuck in a lack of motivation or energy, maybe even sometimes burnt out. And sometimes when you go back to your passion station, you're kind of refueled with passion. So Megan, what is your passion station? That's such a big question to answer. I've definitely heard you all talk about it, but I haven't really thought about mine. What comes to me first, though, so I'll just talk about that, is one of my first clients when I lived in Ohio, he was only 18 months old. And during the initial workshop and consultation, he did not enjoy any of the things that were being done. He didn't want to come sit at a table to learn or anything like that. And he got really upset, which actually for myself and the family and everyone involved, you would think, why is that a passion moment for you? The passion comes in where it was difficult for him. And a lot of teams might have tried to just keep pushing through with the child and just trying to get them used to how the sessions and the therapy was supposed to look. But I was fortunate, we were all fortunate that there was someone on the team, two people on the team who were creative out of the box thinkers And they said, why don't we just change what we're doing? It's not effective for him. He's not enjoying sitting here at a table or trying to sit at a table to learn. He's only 18 months old. Let's Mm -hmm. just do more play and, you know, get rid of all of these work looking materials that he saw during the initial consult and just see what happens if we play with him instead. And we did. And he made so much progress so quickly when we just change things around to meet his needs and to do what would work best for him as a learner. And that I was fortunate to have super early in my career to see that flexibility and what can happen when you really take what you know works from a scientific standpoint, but figure out how to make it best work for the environment that you're in. So whenever I'm struggling, I I think back to that little guy and make sure that we're really being flexible with our learners. Hmm, That's sweet. Yeah, and I can see how that has translated to the work that you're doing right now, too. Yeah. And you've done some international work as well, right? Yes. Could you tell us about that? Sure. So I feel like so much of my life is just by accident. (laughs) So when I first moved to Virginia, I started my own company because there wasn't really anywhere to work. 
And I was on a lot of Yahoo listservs at the time because I had this lull of like three months where we were moving military. It just takes forever. And I didn't, wasn't quite working yet. So I just had all this free time, which as a behavior analyst, like never happens. So I was just super active on these Yahoo listservs and I was interacting with all these different behavior analysts. And when I first moved to Virginia, one of the first families to contact me for services had received services from a behavior analyst in Germany who I had been interacting with already on the listservs as well. His name was Robert Schramm. So it just was kind of odd that that was the only other behavior analyst she had ever had. And a lot of my strategies and interventions that I was using from behavior analytic perspective were similar to how he was providing them services in Germany. So we started working together. She wanted my services because of the similarities. And because of that relationship, like kind of connecting more with Robert in Germany, when he would get contacted by families that needed services because he was in Germany and they might be in Italy or Serbia or different places, and he couldn't serve them, he would connect them with me instead. And I was, again, fortunate because I didn't have children yet. I was kind of newer in my career, but had enough experience and knowledge and background to work at that level. So I've, I started out with having a couple of clients, one in Italy and one in Serbia. And I just kept it on my profile on LinkedIn that I provided international services because I liked it. It wasn't anything I ever really sought out. It was just these people would contact me and I really enjoyed working with them. So that led to providing services in a few different countries on top of that and then providing supervision to people who were seeking either BCABA supervision, meaning they have a certification, but they need oversight from someone like myself or people that wanted to become certified and become a board certified behavior analyst. So I've now, I think, I don't even know, it's probably like 20 or so different countries that I've had interactions with either through supervision or clients. Hmm. Interesting. So has anything stood out to you as far as similarities with need across all of these different countries? So yes, I think that it's interesting because a lot of people think about in the United States things are more advanced and we have more access here. And there is, there's funding, you know, we definitely have a lot going on for access to intervention. The schools have individualized education plans that they're supposed to follow. However, I've seen in each of the different countries that I've been to, the families all encounter the same barriers. Even if there is some type of funding, it's a fight to get that funding, or there's no clear way to navigate it. So they're still fighting for services and trying to figure out how to access Once they get services, the quality varies. So even if there are services available, they're not necessarily receiving intervention from people who really know what they're doing. And the one thing that's really stood out, though, is the amount of perseverance and passion and dedication from the caregivers and the families who want to help their children live the most independent, successful, happy lives they possibly can. It doesn't matter. It hasn't mattered where I've been. That's been the one key factor. And a lot of times I can make more progress and I see more happen in the different countries that I go to, partially, I think, because there is such a lack of resources that making that connection and really 
learning from someone, they just, they're so thirsty for that knowledge and they just apply it right away. Whereas in places that I've been to in the States where there have been more resources, it's almost like it's too easy sometimes to access. And it's almost like you don't realize what you have. So then people don't actually put anything into place. I know Molly has talked about, and when I was at the Global Autism Summit, some people have talked about some of the the more kind of negative side of things where people might have to go into hiding or nobody can know about their diagnosis and things like that because it's dangerous. I haven't myself worked in any of those situations. So it's always been more about everyone kind of knows the diagnosis is there and how can we help this child have the most successful life possible. Right. Yeah, that's interesting what you're saying about the level of effort that people will put in when they know that the resources are there or not. And I've wondered that too with families that I worked with before, you know, and I don't want to sound judgmental, but they weren't putting in a lot of commitment to their parent training. And it could have been something that I was doing that maybe I wasn't meeting them where they were at either. But we saw people who were paying at least a copay with insurance were showing up more versus people who were just getting services for free. Yeah. And, you know, as a behavior analyst, it's figuring out, okay, in these different environmental arrangements, then what do we have to do, right? It's sad. And on one hand, that families that pay thousands of dollars out of pocket are obviously going to put in more of a commitment. Although I have worked for a few families that I don't know if they just had enough money that it didn't matter, but they would pay a ton out of pocket and still not commit to. But figuring out, like you said, what what was going on there with that difference in commitments and see what do we need to do differently? Because typically we all have different contingencies, different things pulling on us and pulling our attention in different directions. So it's hard when you're working with so many different families to figure out for this particular family, what are the things pulling them away from what's needed to help their child be successful? And how do we help motivate them to get them in a space where they'll put in the things that need to be done for their child to be successful? Yeah, absolutely. That definitely falls on us. Let's talk about the Do Better movement. How did this come about? So I started the Do Better movement back in 2018. And it came about, I was doing a lot of supervision at that time. Again, like I mentioned, with people kind of all around the world, I was traveling a lot and doing trainings in different places. And I kept noticing the same themes coming up of skill sets that people for whatever reason, whether it was their graduate training or their supervision or just maybe their practice in terms of the the populations they were serving, there were key aspects of behavior analysis and being effective behavior analysts that they weren't learning. So I had this running list of all of these different trainings I wanted to create. And I had it, you know, the little notes section on on Max. I had it just go in there. And I kept saying, I'm going to find time to make these trainings. I'm just going to make this happen someday. And I just kept putting it off. So finally, on Christmas of 2017, I was like, that's it. I don't know what it was. There must have been a Facebook post or something that I was just like, I can't. (laughs) I can't do it anymore. I need to get something out there. So I wrote down on like red paper that I had, I wrote a whole list for the whole entire 2018, every week laid out, we'll talk about this topic each month was a different topic. And each week was a different activity. I was very ambitious about it. (laughs) Unfortunately, with my schedule with traveling and everything, we didn't get to do every activity each week, but we did, it did at least 
that say do correspondence of I will present on these topics and we will have a webinar on these topics did happen. So we, I created each of the, the presentations for 2018 on just different topics that I felt the field needed to be focusing on more to have effective practice. And then for 2019, I invited people that were kind of up and coming that I had seen presenting at conferences to present their research or their practice, that areas of expertise. And for 2020, I did an open call and just had people sign up to present. So we've had two to four presentations every month in 2020. It kind of increased because of COVID. And it's been a lot more of a platform for kind of just practitioners to share with their peers and and with others in society what work they're doing and what they're finding helpful for working with their clients. And it's trying to focus on areas that, again, we wouldn't necessarily have much exposure to in graduate school either because when we were in graduate school, those weren't popular things to talk about, like um, at the time for me, at least ACT, acceptance and commitment therapy, or for whatever reason, the the graduate schools just don't focus on these areas. So the latest shift for 2021, we're kind of transitioning things. So we have the Do Better movement, we put out free webinars and other like podcasts and just as many resources as we can to help improve the practice of behavior analysis. But for 2020, we've been working on creating what we call the Do Better Collective, which is a community website. And in 2021, it will be an actual app that you can open on your phone. It's kind of similar to Facebook, but it's without all the drama, hopefully. And (laughs) so we we have different topics and groups that people can join and have conversations about, just like you would on Facebook. And you see the different threads that happen on Facebook, but in a way that has specific professional expectations. And that we even have a webinar for people to watch to give guidance on the ethical code and what we would hope people would do in behavior analysis based on the research in listening and learning from people. So we can help sort of shape and guide behavior analysts to being more collaborative and engaging in more perspective taking and empathy and compassion when we encounter different perspectives. There's even within our own field, there are topics that come up like ACT, where some behavior analysts are like, that's a bunch of hokey, you know, crap, like that's not, we, we don't do that. That's too much in the mind and not enough in the observable realm. And then you have other people who think it's the best thing ever and have tons of research and all that. So we can't even agree on certain things within our own field. But then outside of our field, there's tons of different worldviews. And if we want to disseminate our science, we need to be able to interact with people in a way that's not bullying or, you know, too aggressive and assertive over my view is better than your view, which I was trained in graduate school that behavior analysis is the only view. That's the best view. And you just need to get everyone on your side, right? Because we're going to save the world. Right. Yeah. So the only way that we can help connect with people and really even look at what environments exist. And of course, you know this from the work you've done in different countries as well. We have to work within the environment we're given, not try to force the environment around ourselves, right? Molly always says, do with, not for, right? So we have to work with the the people that we're supposed to be working with, not try to force them to accept and adopt our way of thinking. So that's kind of our big shift for 2021. We have it in beta testing right now. And we're really excited to see where things go. We're obviously going to continue 
creating free content and professional development and all of that with the Do Better movement. But the Do Better Collective is like the next level. That is so exciting. We are very excited. (laughs) Yeah. And it's so important. It's so relevant right now. Yes. These things that you're talking about, about having the ability to just have a conversation with someone that disagrees with you. It is a skill that unfortunately is not prioritized right now. And the work that you're doing is so important to bring people together to disseminate the science so that people can get services. Like the bigger picture at the end of the day is that we're helping people with autism or other people who can benefit from behavior analysis. Yep. Exactly. And a lot of the ideas and the ability to sort of take it to that next level, we, well, there's two people I need to thank for that. Jen Phelps, who is my business partner. We both are visionaries, but in different ways. And she's much more of like the big picture, like how do we grow and get things out there? And then, of course, Molly from the Global Autism Project and everyone really at the Global Autism Project with modeling for us how that can be done and really creating a community where people are focused on doing with and not for and really learning different perspectives and creating that curiosity and listening to learn. I All of those concepts, I had been like getting bits and pieces in my life, but it wasn't until I met Molly and started doing some things with her and attending some of the global autism events that I really was able to broaden that skill set and connect with resources to really help me understand it better. Yeah, very cool. So you mentioned that you were at Global Summit last year. We actually stayed at the same villa. Yes. What was that experience like for you? It was definitely life-changing. I I don't think I've ever been to a conference quite like that. And it definitely was not what I was expecting at all, which in a good way. And I really enjoyed the different activities that we did both as large groups with some of the improv type things, but also in the smaller sessions, Molly led some and it was just really eye-opening. Some of the things, again, that you just don't even realize are happening in your everyday life and you take a moment to just sort of sit down and talk about it and do exercises around it and you just can't go back. (laughs) You just move forward. So that was really great. And of course, being able in one place to meet and talk to people from all over the world who have similar values and are doing similar work and really get to learn more about, again, what they're doing and how they're building their community and, you know, what barriers they're facing and what types of things they need people to potentially help them with. Yeah, it really was. I mean, a lot of people who attended say that it was a life-changing experience. I think the setting also, you know, Bali is just so magical and it kind of invites this relaxation and open-mindedness, you know? Yes. I I hope it happens again. (laughs) I need COVID to go away. I know. Okay, Megan, back to the Do Better movement. Could you give some common examples that you see of areas in which behavior analysts can do better? Sure. So I have quite a few, but I'll I'll narrow it down to three. (laughs) So one is early intervention. That's where I was initially trained. And I think that's where a lot of people start in this field. It's so appealing to hang out with little two and three-year-olds all day long. So I think from a developmental perspective, a lot of us, myself included at the time, 
when I first started in the field aren't trained well enough on typical development and what to really expect from 18 month olds up to really any age, any of the ages we're working with. But especially for that young of a population, there's seems to be some really wild and unrealistic expectations for what a young child should be doing, like sitting at a table for an hour or really not tantruming at all. Like I had clients where we had behavior plans to try to have zero tantrums. And if you've ever met a two-year-old, it's <laughs> right. not realistic, yeah. but also what's focused on during those sessions. When I first started in the field and still for a lot of early intervention, the focus is on trying to normalize and get, you know, academics, shapes, colors, numbers, letters, like all these skills that you would see being taught in like preschool or kindergarten. And the justification I was told when I started in the field was to get those skills mastered. So when they start school, they can be more ready to like, maybe learn social skills and interact with their peers. But when you look at the research on autism, all of the research shows the learners who make the most progress and have the best outcomes are ones who demonstrate certain play and spontaneous behavior at a very young age. So if we go in there and we're only working on typical like preschool and kindergarten skills and trying to sit at a table and we're not working on relationship building or play skills, we're really doing a disservice. That doesn't mean, I mean, obviously lots of children have, you know, done well with this, that style of therapy but at the cost of what else, you know, and then what problems kind of creep up later that we aren't, we don't even know of because we only have them when they're little. So then they go off to school and, and we think we did a great job, but who knows what's happening while they're actually in school, right? So that's one area I think we need to learn more about typical development and focus on that relationship piece and really looking at the social aspect of that's what the diagnosis is. And not in a way that forces someone to mask or pretend like be a neurotypical, but in a way that helps with self-advocacy and really learning how to navigate things. And if somebody's motivated and wants to be more social, giving them the skill sets to do that. But if they'd prefer to be more of an introvert and like pull back, giving them the skill sets to advocate and like navigate those situations too. Yeah, that's a good point. So that's one. The second one is just how we address challenging behavior that's the one that I've spent probably the most time on. If you look at the 2018 webinars, I think probably half of them talk about challenging behavior. Yeah, I've seen some of those and gotten some of my CEUs from you. <laughs> yeah, so that and that's been a passion area of mine since at least 2010. But we're trained to look at function and look at why challenging behavior might be happening, which is there's nothing wrong with that. But unfortunately, it seems like that's all people are attending to. Nowadays, like as long as they can figure out what's happening that could be maintaining, making the behavior persist. So the child might get out of doing a task or they might get attention or they might be given their favorite toy. If those clear patterns exist, a lot of people think if you just remove that thing, you don't let them out of the task, you don't give them attention, you don't give them the toy, that that would be enough to shift and see a decrease in the challenging behavior because it's no longer effective for them. And that does simplistically work in quite a few situations, but there's also a lot of situations where that's one piece of what's happening and there's a lot more going on. There's skill deficits, there's things happening in the environment to trigger the challenging behavior, there's emotion, like being able to navigate emotions and really figure out how to properly respond when things aren't going the way they want them to. 
And those, all of that kind of stuff doesn't get assessed and doesn't get taught or targeted. It just seems like people think it will magically happen. If we don't provide the reinforcer, <laughs> if we don't give mm-hmm. them the why of what, why they're engaging in their challenging behavior, it'll just stop. And like I said, I've had clients, of course, where that is the case. It was that simple. But I could, if I assessed them, all of those other things would have been taken care of. They didn't have skill deficits, you know. They could communicate just fine. It was just this environment that was set up to reinforce the challenging behavior. Unfortunately, for a lot of the cases that most of us have, especially nowadays with more and more people accessing services, they're not as simple as that. Mm -hmm. Right. It's so important to teach something functional that the learner can do so that they can gain that access to whatever the reinforcer is, whatever is causing that challenging behavior. Because it's usually just a deficit in communication. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like being able to tell someone that they don't want whatever it is or that they want it. Yeah. Right. I think one of the biggest things that jumps out at me, especially for the younger learners, and I think it's because I have a four and a half year old, it's not sometimes just even the communication. It is more about like their body is feeling a certain way and like acting on that. So my it's, it just blows my mind. My four and a half year old, typical communication, interacts with me just fine. But the moment something stressful is happening in the environment, it's like he doesn't have any skills whatsoever. And we're all like that. When we're in stressful situations, our skill sets decrease greatly. And there's research that's been done on it. Mm. Yet somehow we try to expect the learners we're working with to exhibit skills that are already difficult for them in difficult environments when it's stressful. So some of it's also just figuring out how to teach them not just to communicate what you know is wrong or what they what needs to be changed or what they need or want but how do you you know your body's feeling this certain way and like what do you do with that do you kick a wall or do you take a deep breath and like try to recenter yourself right those coping strategies yeah and i think a lot of what is overlooked too when we're trying to help people with autism is their sensory needs Like I'm realizing this now after talking to a lot of adults with autism who are reflecting on therapies that they've received growing up and how, you know, at some points like it's torturous to force someone to look at someone else in the eye or to force someone to stop flapping their hands. I know people don't really implement programs like this anymore, I hope, but it wasn't so long ago that people were. Right. And unfortunately, I think some people still do, but it is definitely less, a lot less than it used to be. And that's something I think about. I'm not certified in trauma-informed care, but I have listened to a lot of the different podcasts or presentations on that topic. And what's interesting to me is they talk about ACE, which is a trauma skill, and it looks at different things that a child might have experienced and kind of sort of predicts what might be difficult. Are you talking about the ACE, like adverse childhood experiences? Yep. Okay. Yep. Yeah. That's the one that predicts what medical challenges they might have as an adult. Yes. So I've listened to a few different presentations on that. And I was fortunate back in, I think it was 2014, I went, there's a really great conference in Cleveland called Milestones Autism Conference. And the keynote speaker, I'm pretty sure it was Stephen Shore. And he's a very popular self-advocate. And he did this exercise with us where 
we were in a group of two or three people and one person was just making lots of noises and another person was doing a lot of like movement in your face. And then you had to try to like solve a problem of some sort while like all of that was happening around you. And he was like, this is my life. This is what I experience every minute of every day. And like, now you have like a glimpse of what it feels like. And I think about that. And I think about some of the other stories I see shared by people with an autism diagnosis. And it makes me wonder, you know, if we can measure these adverse childhood experiences that people have, how does the the different sensory experiences that having autism gives, not everyone, but, you know, there's obviously some aspect of the diagnosis that results in that. Like, so what, how traumatic is just like their day-to-day, minute-to-minute experience And then we're potentially adding to that trauma in the way that we're trying to navigate the challenging behavior instead of being supportive and really looking at, you know, taking their perspective and figuring out what can we do to help you learn to cope with this and then build skill sets around it. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes. And like dealing with tantrum behavior, if we are told strictly to follow through, follow through, and maybe continue placing whatever instruction we were placing or continue withholding whatever we were withholding for like an hour or something Yep. because that's just, you know, the strict way to do ABA. What kind of harm are we causing to that child who now will have burned in their memory like this hour tantrum with an adult that they were supposed to trust? Right. Yep. And that's where I go back to that passion moment that we were talking about, because that was my that little 18 month old. And it wasn't just an hour, it was like a whole weekend. And then a few weeks of just tantrums with us every time we every time he would see us. Right. And it's like, the fact that we were able to regain a relationship with him and figure out how to connect with him and be more playful. After he had experienced all of that other trauma with us was just amazing to me. I guess it shows some level of resilience for that age. But at the same time, it's like, is that what you want your default to be that you start there and then like repair a relationship? Or do you want it to be strong to begin with and you never have to go there? Right. Yep. Okay. So you have challenging behaviors. Yes. Early intervention. And then the last one is we talked about it a little bit earlier, but it's just collaboration. So whether it's parent training or collaborating with other service providers or teachers or whoever, but just how we engage (laughs) with others and not being jerks and not being arrogant and really looking at, especially if we're working with parents or if we're in like a school setting, we're the visitors. And yes, we have expertise on the science of behavior analysis. We are there to help identify what needs to happen and create plans that will be effective in a collaboration. We're not supposed to be there to just say, this is exactly what we're doing and you must do it this way. And this is how it's done. Take it or leave it. Except that's how a lot of us are trained, myself included. So I hope at some point our field will, as a service-based field, have requirements in our coursework focused on how do you effectively collaborate with others and how do you use things like motivational interviewing or appreciative inquiry to really dive in and help people identify what their values are and what changes they want to make, as opposed to being the person that just comes in and says, this is what we're doing, take it or leave it. Yeah, exactly. We have to pair also. Yes. With the teachers that we work with, with the parents that we work with. It's a relationship. And this was 
always something that kind of bothered me with with the field. There's this detachment from you and your client, even when it comes to termination. Like you're not supposed to give them anything or like even give them a thank you note or whatever because of all of these gray areas really in the ethics code. The truth is though, that we are, this is a therapeutic relationship and you can't deny that. Like there is a bond that's there between you and the kid, whether it's a kid or an adult or the parents and the teachers and, you know, everyone involved on the team. It's not so black and white where the line is drawn. And I think if we approach the practice that way with more compassion, like you're saying, and just trying to understand who it is that we're talking to, I feel like the outcomes will be better for the person that you're trying to help in the end. Exactly. And what's interesting, because when I was building that webinar I was talking about for the Do Better Collective, I was doing some research on compassion and sort of just different skills that you would teach in a a science to see what has been done to look at effectiveness. So like effectiveness of interventions when people have been trained on compassion, empathy, perspective taking, those types of things. And I couldn't find anything in behavior analysis. There's a couple articles of people talking about the need for it, but I couldn't find anything where it's like, we trained students or we trained behavior analysts on these skill sets and this was the outcome doesn't mean it's not there. I could have missed it. I did find things for nurses and doctors and other fields where it's a science-based field, but it's also a service-based field where you have to interact with people. And of course, when the nurses and the doctors were trained on those things, they had better outcomes, they had better treatment adherence, et cetera. And we've known, I mean, when I was at FSU, we didn't read it, but a few, like a year or two after I graduated, Dr. Bailey started having students read Dale Carnegie's book, How to Win Friends and Influence People. From That's like a business person type thing. But all of the things he talks about in that book were really not ever trained on, yet there's research to support building those relationships is, you know, necessary for consistent, effective outcomes. So why are we not trained on it? <laughs> Yeah. Well, I wonder, is there talk of it being added to the task list? You know, there's the new task list, I think, that comes out in 2022. I haven't memorized it or anything, but I would bet that there's a little bit more on there. It's not, from what I can tell, at least, like, you know, the new Cooper book came out. I haven't heard anybody talking about, like, we have a, you know, that big textbook that everyone uses and everyone's showing how much bigger it is now compared. And I don't have it yet. I haven't had a need to buy it. And I I haven't heard anyone say, oh, wow, did you notice in the Cooper book, they talk about collaboration. So I'm assuming it's not in there. So I would imagine even if it's on the task list, it's probably going to be something similar to ethics and supervision where it needs to be in the verified course sequence that there needs to be an actual course and continuing education required on like cultural humility or collaboration or something in that arena before we see any big shifts happen. Mm -hmm. So in response to the BACB's announcement in 2019, it feels like such a long time ago now, (laughs) in December 2019, they said that they would no longer provide certification to people living outside of the U.S. or Canada. And so from that announcement, there was an organization that kind of developed, and that is the IBAO? Yes. Okay. Yep. Can you go ahead and talk about that? 
So it's the International Behavior Analysis Organization. And I am on the professional advisory board, but with COVID, I just have not been as active as I would have liked to. My schedule just changed drastically with having my son home for a really long time. And he is in school now, but now it's like catching up on all the things that I got behind on. So Dr. Mike Mueller and AJ Njoku developed it in January, I guess. They had been working with a group overseas and the group was so devastated when they they were there when the announcement came out from the BACB and they were so devastated because they had just spent a really long time working with their government to get funding to go through the coursework and become certified and it wasn't going to be feasible anymore because of the, the tight deadline around it. So Mike was really inspired by them and how passionate they were about wanting to continue to pursue learning about behavior analysis. So he came back and contacted a few people and I was one of them. And we just sort of all reached out to our different contacts and built this professional advisory board for the IBAO. So there's, I believe at this point, there's over 20 countries represented that have been giving input. So over the last 10 months, they've been working on building the task list and the ethics code and the testing, all of the things that you would need to have the, an official certification. I have not been as involved with it as I was hoping because of COVID, but I've been reviewing the materials as I can. And it's just been really incredible to watch how people, again, from so many different countries have been able to come together and they'll put out a draft of something and people will point out how something might be an issue for their particular area. And there will be some conversation and they'll shift things to make it more feasible for countries at large, right? Now, obviously, we all know every area is different, especially in terms of the resources available for having something like this. So there's also a lot of flexibility built in with the hope that for people from each of the countries that are represented and anyone else that decides to pursue it, that they would be able to connect with their own local governments and potentially make whatever modifications might need to be made or have like chapters so that things could be created in a way that's beneficial to that community as opposed to one blanket thing that would try to be worldwide, which was, you know, what the BACB recognized, like that's just not possible (laughs) to have one thing that's worldwide. And I definitely, you know, can understand that. I don't judge or criticize them for that. And I'm glad that they were, it must've been a really difficult decision for them to make that, but it obviously makes more sense than trying to continue to push, push a United States like worldview on everyone else. Exactly. Yeah. So with these chapters, countries can make it more relevant to their own culture. Right. So, and again, I don't know a ton about like where that aspect of the process is. I think it's going to be some type of phased approach where, you know, the initial stuff comes out and then the IBAO will work with people in different areas to make sure they can get access. But even the initial, there's like different pathways for becoming certified that are a lot more flexible, but still focused on demonstrating competency with the science. So I think Mm -hmm. that's going to be hugely beneficial. I don't want to say too much because I'm not sure how much has been released yet versus it's still being worked on, but they do have a website. So I can send that to you if you want to put it in the show notes and people can check it out. Yeah, that would be great because it's important to have some kind of regulatory standard so that parents who are looking for services in these countries can have some kind of gold standard of what to look out for. Yes. 
because, you know, there are many people who are trying to do good and they have autism centers, but it's not best practice and they're not implementing evidence-based procedures. And so it's hard if you're a parent and you really don't know. Right. And you're just looking things up on the internet and who knows what you're going to find. Yes. Yep. And I know Michelle Kelly, who's out in the United Arab Emirates, she did a presentation at ABAI. I was on a symposium with her and she talked about what they're creating. They were working on creating for Abu Dhabi and working with the government there. And I told her, I was like, I hope you'll write this up as a paper because this could be a great model for other places that want to create their own thing and not go through one of the existing bodies that are already out there. So hopefully she will, but that's someone else or something else to keep an eye on is, you know, countries just doing, I know there's a few others, Brazil, maybe there's certain countries that have their own certification process that they've come up with. That's great. I mean, that's kind of what, I guess what the BACB was hoping would happen from this, you know? Right. Okay, Megan, switching topics, you co-wrote a book actually with Robert Schramm, who you mentioned earlier back in 2014. The Seven Steps to Earning Instructional Control. Was that book written with the do better mindset already back then? (laughs) Yeah. So something I didn't mention when we talked about how the do better movement came about, I actually have a presentation from 2009 that I created when I was at FSU (laughs) as their clinical director. And I talked about how I am constantly trying to do better. So it's really been something that's existed my whole career, I guess. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so Robert and I started presenting together at conferences after we connected on the Yahoo listserv. And after one of our conference presentations, he said, you know, we should, he has a book already called Motivation and Reinforcement where he talks about the seven steps, but the book covers a lot of other things. So he wanted to just pull out the seven steps aspect of it for people wanting to dive in and learn more about that. And, you know, he asked if I wanted to participate. And of course I said, yes. So the aspect of the book that I helped with is a training packet that I had created to help train teachers on the seven steps. So we put that in the book so people can go through that packet with their teams or their families and come up with how they're going to implement the seven steps with their students or their clients. So the seven steps are basically things that everyone would potentially do as a behavior analyst, but it's put into like a nice little package. So it's easy to follow. And it's not super different than what we would be trained on. It's like things like have fun, control access to reinforcers, keep your demands low when you're first getting started. But it's just especially the way that Robert writes about it. It's a lot easier for people to understand However, especially in school settings, when people read it, they're like, how, (laughs) how will I implement this? What will I do? So that was my attempt at helping people learn to how to take what they're reading in the seven steps and make a plan for what they're going to do with it. Mm -hmm. Cool. Have you ever thought about writing a book about the other topics that you're interested in with the do better movement? So that's funny you ask that. Actually, after ABAI, I think in 2010 or 2011, I was like, I'm going to write a book. And I made an outline and everything. I have the chapters identified. I'm not a good writer. I'm just not. I've tried. I've just did a chapter for a book that Jacob is putting together. 
And I like, it's, it's a struggle. I can talk all day long. Like we could have a six hour long podcast episode probably. And we'd be, (laughs) I could tell you lots of great things, but when it comes to writing it, I just am not great at it. So what I'd actually prefer to do, and that was supposed to be a 2020 outcome, but it didn't happen. So hopefully it'll happen in 2021 is make a course on our website, especially geared towards parents. Cause the book was supposed to be for parents and how to navigate all of the things. Because when you get diagnosed, there's so many different interventions and what do you look for in a good intervention and all of that kind of stuff. So the outline is focused on kind of giving a sort of cliff notes version of like the different things they would encounter and sort of what to look for and how to navigate those things. So instead of making it a book, I think what I'd like to do is just record some webinars on it since I'm better at that. Everyone has their medium. (laughs) Do you collaborate with any self-advocates to kind of inform your practice? So I hadn't until recently. When I first started in the field, I read a lot of books written by self-advocates. So obviously Temple Grandin is one a lot of people know of. Donna Williams, Sean Baron Cohen are a couple of others that I read. Um, John Elder Robeson. So I was very much consuming as much as I could. And back when I first started in the field and actually had time to read, there weren't a whole lot of different authors. Those were kind of the big ones. And John Elder Robeson didn't come along until a few years later. More recently, there's tons of autistic authors, whether it's books or blogs or TikToks or whatever. There's so many different mediums that you can look at. So it's a lot easier to connect with. And I have a few people that I interact with and ask questions about. And that's another thing that's on my list for 2021. I'd like to try to have, whether it's just for my own stuff or for Do Better at Large, a way not just for autistic self-advocates, but for marginalized groups in general to consult and review presentation materials before we actually do the presentations. So that's uh, on the list. It may be a 2022 thing, depending on organization and budget and whatnot, but it's, it's on the list at least. So I think it's really important that we are learning from people with different learning histories and different perspectives, especially populations that we're serving of course, I have my three to five people that I talk to. I would talk to anyone that wants to talk to me, but those are, I have like a handful of people that I talk to consistently. And we all recognize that that's their experience and, you know, how life is for them. And then you synthesize that with your interventions and you have to do some cost benefit analysis based on your clinical judgment and expertise of the client or whatever material you're presenting. It might not be that everything gets incorporated but it's still good to have people to talk through that stuff with because if you don't, it's very unlikely never having lived that experience that you're going to come up with that those ideas on your own. Yeah, exactly. And I think as the neurodiversity movement grows and you know more people are taking the perspective of autistic people and really listening to what their values are, you know, it'll just better inform the way that we write programs, I think, like thinking about these cute little kids that we work with who grow up to be adults, how can we empower them to be self-advocates in their communities so that you know, there is more awareness, there's more inclusion, there's less of a stigma, people are becoming gainfully employed, like all of these things that 
we're hoping for when we are teaching those three-year-olds. Yep. Yeah. All right, Megan, we're going to have to wrap up here, but I'd like to close with one last question. Okay. What advice would you give to other professionals in the field who might be now catching the wave and would like to do better? Like, where do they start? Well, of course, I would recommend checking out the resources that we have on our website, dobettermovement.us or dobettercollective.us. And really being open to being flexible. If you learned something a certain way and someone else is presenting information in a different way, figure out, you know, think about it. Don't just immediately shut it down and turn away from it. And research is wonderful. So are people's learned experiences. It doesn't mean you have to completely shift what you're doing. It's hard to really develop and evolve as a human or a practitioner if you're not willing to try to listen and learn from different perspectives and figure out how to fit that into your practice. It may not fit, but at least think about it and figure out where it fits, if it fits at all. Because there's a lot of training that happens in our field, again, of like shutting things down and shutting things out and forcing our own beliefs and viewpoints and values. And unless we start making shifts and being more flexible and connecting with people with different values, we're not going to be as effective as we could be. Yeah, exactly. So how can people learn more about you? Oh, there's lots of ways. <laughs> we do have a podcast too called the Do Better Podcast. So that's done with my friend Joe Smith, and he's a newer BCBA, but he was also a teacher. So we put out new episodes usually around the 15th of every month and talk about just whatever we want to. It's not very organized. It's really fun, though. <laughs> I've listened to a few episodes. Oh, good. <laughs> and you guys are really relatable. So I like that. Like it's, I feel like I'm just hanging out with you guys. Yes, that was the goal. It's just supposed to be like conversations. So, And then we have, like I mentioned, the website, dobettermovement.us or dobettercollective.us. You can access the webinars. We do have a few free ones on there. We also have the community, the Do Better Collective. The registration for that starts in like mid-November and there's a free registration or you can sign up for like, you know, different perks and benefits for more. And then of course we're on Facebook. So Do Better Movement on Facebook, Instagram, all of those places. I don't really post as much on there nowadays. I'm, I can't keep up. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I feel you. Like I have content in my head of what I think behavior analysts need to learn and I can make webinars. I cannot keep up with all the changes in social media. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Well, Megan, thank you. You know, I really want to just also thank you for kind of inspiring this urgency in in me. Like, although I'm not practicing right now, I'm, you know, thinking about how I can help the people that I supervise so that they can provide high quality services. So thank you for that. You're welcome. Well, thanks again for this opportunity. Thanks for tuning in to Autism Knows No Borders. The kind of work that Megan is carrying out with the Do Better movement is essential to ensuring that practitioners produce meaningful changes in people's lives. Her advice for anyone providing care to individuals with autism, to be flexible with your method, can help them to step outside the rigid box of cookie-cutter commercial assessments, programs, and procedures. 
Megan encourages professionals to make moment-to-moment decisions based on the current context and the way each learner is responding. We've talked previously on this podcast about the importance of collaboration. One of the objectives of the Do Better movement is to create a safe space for professionals with different perspectives to engage in respectful dialogue. This philosophy can be a useful starting point to progress ideas in other areas of life as well, and arguably one that's necessary. If we listen to learn, we can expand our knowledge, our skill sets, and ultimately the well-being of those we advocate for. How can you do better? Thanks for listening. Take care. Tune in each week for engaging conversations of how people across the globe are inspiring change and building community. You've been listening to Autism Knows No Borders, brought to you by the Global Autism Project. You can find Rachel's notes for this episode and learn more about today's guests at AutismKnowsNoBorders.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the show on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. By doing so, you'll be helping us increase awareness and acceptance of autism around the world.